Have you got your Bibles with you this morning? We're going to turn to, to the book of Haggai. If you're not too sure about the Minor Prophets, it's three books from the end of the Old Testament. If that helps. We um, are into a series on the Minor Prophets just now, and this is Minor Prophet number 10, uh, Haggai. And we've not delegated the Bible reading for anyone else this morning. You can instead watch me struggle with all the long names and words. <laughs> Haggai chapter 1. So here we go. We're going to have the, the whole of the chapter. There's only 15 verses. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses whilst this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, and yet you're not warm. You earn wages, only to put them into a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build a house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I call for a drought on the field and on the mountains, on the grain, the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because of the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Amen. <laughs> well, there's a lot there, isn't there? And I hope there's a lot for us to... Um, to think about uh, this morning as we take a very ancient text and bring it bang up to date for us this morning. And these ancient texts are bang up to date because these texts were written in a day when there was um, a decline in spirituality. People were turning away from God. The, 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 The society in which people lived was turning more godless, more secular. And secondly... They had political issues. The political climate of the country was in a mess as well. Does, does it make sense? Do you recognize this land anywhere? 
Well, here's a word that the Lord spoke into such a land as this, a major message through this minor prophet of Haggai this morning. And before we look at the major messages um, in Haggai, I think uh, if you could just allow me a few minutes to, to show you the context of this message, I think it will help our, our understanding. Because so far with the, um, with the minor prophets, we've been in one particular era of history. With Haggai, we jump into a new era of history. We jump forward in time. And these three final minor prophets are from a very different era to the previous nine. And in order to explain this, I prepared a very simple timeline chart, which I hope will be helpful this morning. King David lived uh, about 3,000 years ago. In other words, about 1,000 years before Christ. Saul, uh, David, and Solomon reigned in a united kingdom for 120 years. And after that, um, we have the time of the exile, and we have the time when the Old Testament came to, the end, to an end. And those are um, on the chart there that's, that, that you see in front of you. Uh, between um, uh, th- these times, things happen. So as we carry on with this slide, we see that during the 400 years that the kingdom was divided, people were turning away from God. Uh, sort of following the reign of, of Saul, David, and Solomon, there is a, a gap there of about 400 years when Israel and Judah became two separate nations. And it was during this time that prophets came into the country, went all around, and warning the people, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the nine previous minor prophets. And literally, they're going around saying to the people, you need to shape up or else God will ship you out. Get yourself sorted. Turn back to God, or else God will deport you. Or, to use the Old Testament word, will exile you. After the exile, the final three prophets speak. And these are referred to as the post-exilic prophets. The the pre-exilic prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the nine minor prophets. There were two prophets, actually, who prophesied during the exile, which are not on the screen there. Daniel and Ezekiel both prophesied whilst the Jews were in exile in Babylonia. But then after the exile, as the Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem that had been ransacked by the Babylonians, to rebuild Solomon's temple that had been ruined, and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, um, then these minor prophets spoke into that situation. Haggai, Zechariah, and finally Malachi, before the Old Testament ends. Solomon's magnificent temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and now was a time for the people to consider rebuilding it. The first point I want to make this morning is, God through Haggai says to the people there needs to be a time to consider and we read um, in, um, in Haggai twice, actually, that the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house, the people say. And what a typical response that was. You see, Jerusalem was being rebuilt, but God's house was laying in a ruin. The Samaritans and other political influences came to bear. And although Jerusalem was being rebuilt, the Lord's house had been parked, had been just put on hold until actually people start to forget about it. And this prophecy came 16 years after the return of the the Jews. So by now, Jerusalem was being well built, but the Lord's house had not been rebuilt. 
And so this message came to them to rebuild the house of the Lord, to put God back in the center of their society. The people's response, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's a typical human response, isn't it? How, how many of us are good at putting off till tomorrow things we ought to be doing today? I'm great at it, actually. Whatever my wife asked me to do, the time has not yet come to fill the dishwasher or to do that decorating or whatever. And maybe you have your occasions when you can say, you know, the Lord is not, the time has not yet come to do this, to do that. A natural human response. It can be true spiritually as well, can't it? Some of you may be able to testify of times when you've put off spiritual decisions that uh, you ought to have made. Maybe even at this point in time, maybe you're just sitting on the fence there rather than doing the things that God is asking you to do, putting it off to a tomorrow which never comes. And so then we read that the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And this is what he says. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses whilst this house, whilst God's house, lies in ruins? You see, it's a a matter of priorities. God is challenging the people. Why are they putting their own house before the Lord's house. The temple had been the spiritual center of this holy city. Solomon's temple had been the wonderful centerpiece and the spiritual place where the Jews came to celebrate the feasts and the festivals. God was now not part of this newly rebuilt city. Many houses had been built, but God's house was still in ruins. Isn't it a time for you yourselves to be living in panel houses whilst this house remains a ruin? Is the message that now came through to this people. You know, we too are, as I've already intimated this morning, we too are living in, in a, an increasingly secular society. We are increasingly seeing churches abandoned and churches and Salvation Army Corps closing their doors. But this may be a message for those of us who are Christians too. It's so easy for us to, as we live in this world and as we are sometimes affected by this world, to lose sight of our spiritual priorities, to lose sight of our prayer life, the reading of our scriptures, for our service and our witness for the Lord. All of these can be the casualties of the pressures of the life and the world in which we live today. At the end of Luke's gospel, um, so Luke chapter 9, at the end of that very long chapter, Uh, There are three would-be followers uh, of Jesus. We we don't get to find out what their names are. We never do find out their names. But there are three would-be followers of Jesus who actually never did follow them. The first um, man said that he wanted, first of all, to go home and to await the death of his father. The second said that he, first of all, wanted to go home and do a farewell tour of his family and friends, and then he will follow Jesus. And Jesus said um, to, to all the three of these, these gentlemen that no one who puts his hand to the plough is fit for service in the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plough is fit in the, in the kingdom of God. We never hear of these would-be disciples again. Their problem was one of priorities. Jesus said, come, follow me. And their, their response was, let me first Go home and do this. Let me first say goodbye to my family. Let me first of all put my own house in order. And that's the problem with our human reaction so far. There's too much let me. Let me, God. Let me, God. But God, 
I want, I, I. That's the, that's the big problem, isn't it? And that's the big thing which is about coming into faith. Perhaps it's no accident that I is right in the center of Christ and I is right in the center of faith because to come to Christ through faith, we need to get rid of that I. And that I needs to be in Christ, as Paul often says. No longer am I alive. I am crucified with Christ so that no longer am I living, but Christ is living through me. You see the change of priorities? It's no longer about me, me, me. It's all about him, him, him when those priorities have changed. Returning to Haggai, we see that there are consequences as well when we fail to give God a central place in our lives. Things can go wrong, spiritually wrong, and wrong in other ways when our priorities get messed up. And God asked these people to consider the consequences of putting their own house before the Lord's house. And just now, God is saying to them, just sit back and take time to consider what is happening as a result of your actions. And twice he says this in verse 5 and then again in verse 7. Give careful thought to your ways. And between those two verses, God outlines the kind of things that they ought to be considering. He says, look, you planted much but you've harvested little. You, you eat, and yet you're still hungry. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You have clothes, but you're still not satisfied. And you earn wages, and yet you're still broke. I like the Living Bible paraphrase, which says, you put money into a pocket with holes in it. Just the same kind of phrase we use today. In other words, you're a society that has so much, and yet you're still an unsatisfied people. Do you recognize that society anywhere? Just like ours, if we're really honest about it today. This is what the Almighty says in this moment in time. Give careful thought to your ways. You know, most people in our society, including ourselves, most of us have all that we need. And yet this world is crying out for more, crying out for more. If only they would realize that Christ is the answer to our every need. Using a different metaphor, not only is it like putting uh, money into pockets with holes in it, but the money seems to disappear, disappear like flour through a sieve, as another translation puts it. And that's just, just how this society is, isn't it? So we have so much, and yet we have so little. Paying the price for disobedience of God. God wants them to build his house, but they're only content on building their own houses. God wants them to be cheerful givers, but instead all they can be is cheerful keepers. Maybe we too should take time to consider. Maybe this political unrest we have at the moment is a time for us as Christians to sit back and consider what is going on in our world and what is going on in our society. Of course, as a church, as a core, we need to do that often. And I think uh, the review process we've been going through and the creation of our mission development plan is allowing the core to, to just sit back and, and look at the things that we are and think some of the things we're doing and to ask God uh, about the big questions, uh, about the things that we are and things that we are doing for him here in the West End, to, to, to take careful thought, to take stock of, of all that we are and all that we're doing, to take stock of what we are sowing and what we are reaping, Are we pleased with the house of God that is being built up? 
We need to make sure that it's what God wants and not our personal gender. We need to ensure that this is about building the kingdom of God. Now we may need to ask, whose house are we building? Is it really about him, him, him? Or is it about me, me, me? Where are our priorities? Where's God's house in all this? Where's God's kingdom in what we're trying to build? And maybe God's message through Haggai comes down through the centuries to you and to me. Give careful thought to your ways. Secondly, there needs to be a time to believe. God's people finally believed in God's word, the word that was coming through Haggai. And they decided to do something about rebuilding the temple. Here's what we read in verse 12. The whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. What a great moment that was when people came to believe in the word of the Lord that was being delivered by Haggai. How encouraging for Haggai himself that they were receiving these words as a word from the Lord. In fact, um, although Agai is the second smallest book in the Old Testament, such phrases as, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord came, are recorded over 20 times in 38 verses. They receive this word as a word of the Lord. And we should receive every word of Scripture as coming from the Lord. And it's, it's interesting that there is such an emphasis here on the word of the Lord coming to the people. And it seems to have worked. They obeyed the word of the Lord. The people believed in what the Lord was saying. You know, it's one thing to sit back and to consider. And we're very good at doing that, I think, in the Salvation Army. We like to have our meetings and sit down and consider things and and consider all the options. But it's something different to be sat up in your seat, even sitting on the edge of your seat, believing that God can actually do something and God can actually bring to pass the things that are the aspirational dreams of our core and of us each individually. Actually really believing that God can make it happen. Can we really believe that as, as God wanted to work through these exi- elect exiles, that God can do his work through us too? Do we really believe that? Sometimes I just wonder, we sell ourselves short Uh, Perhaps sometimes wondering whether God is exaggerating the things he says to us. Maybe sometimes we're so eager to put things to one side and say, God, surely you you, you could not be asking us to do that. Maybe God is asking us to do something greater and bigger than we are yet imagining. The Apostle Paul, by all accounts, was not much to look at if uh, tradition can be believed. And he certainly was plagued with a thorn in the flesh. And yet... Paul testifies that the grace of God was sufficient for him, and he believed that God could work even through him. And God continues to do that. God can work through little old me and little old you, because it's not about me and it's not about you, it's about him. And he can do immeasurably more than all that we might ask or imagine. As Paul said to the church at Corinth, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world to despise the things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And God could do that amongst us too. We too often minimize what God can do through us because we minimize our capacity to do God's will here on earth. 
But the truth is that God does want to work through us. We don't know why. We don't know why God should choose to work through people like you and me, but he does. He does work through, as we've testified and heard this morning, he does work through the Dennis's of this world, and he will continue to work through David's of this world. And he'll work through each one of us this morning. And we might not feel that we can do all that God is asking us to do, but we can do his extraordinary work even though we are just ordinary people. God chooses the foolish to become faithful. God chooses the weak to be his witnesses. God chooses the lowly to become loyal. God chooses the despised to become disciples. And God chooses the world's nobodies to become his nobility. And I hope and pray that we today are believing people, that we, we won't stop praying for the big things, for the greater things that God wants to do in and through us and through the cause and churches that we represent here this morning. But let me finally, quickly and briefly come to the final point this morning. And as you can see, we're going back in the alphabet. There was a time to act. It's one thing to sit back and consider It's one thing to sit on the edge of our seats believing, but it's quite another thing to stand up and to get on with the work of the Lord, to get involved in the activity of of God's work. And so these folk picked up their tools and um, started to rebuild the house of the Lord, and they rebuilt the temple back there in Jerusalem. In verse 14 we read, They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. What a red letter day that was for Haggai. What a red letter day that, that was for God and for the kingdom. God spoke the word. The people believed the word. And now they were responding and acting on that word. You know, we never know what decisions we make today that will impact on the future. When an old roller skating rink was purchased by the Salvation Army of those, all those years ago, I understand that people laughed and ridiculed at William Booth. And yet what a place this has been for so many blessings and so many victories over 130-odd years now. What decisions might seem foolish, might seem ridiculous at the time, but what decisions might we make today that future generations may thank us for, or more more to the point, we'll thank God for. Let me tell you something. Back in Haggai's day, it was these very humble, very everyday city Jews who got their hands dirty and built the temple of the Lord. And they were ridiculed for it. It was nothing like Solomon's temple. Remember Solomon's temple, how wonderful it was? This was like a garden shed compared with Solomon's temple. It was an insult. It was a pathetic attempt to rebuild the house of the Lord. But we haven't got time this morning to look into the second chapter of Haggai, but it speaks there about the temple being the place where the desire of all nations shall come, in verse 7. And in verse 9, that the glory of this present house shall be greater than the former temple. And why? Because Jesus would come to that temple. Jesus would preach in that temple. Jesus would, would minister in that temple. Jesus would overthrow the tables, the money changers' tables in that temple. This was the place where the desire of all nations will come. And actually this temple will be greater than the splendor 
of Solomon's temple as a result. With that in mind, friends, can I invite you to get involved in building God's temple? God only knows what future glories are yet to take place in this all and in the churches and corps that we represent. Because let, let me remind you, we, we're not just talking about a physical building here. Yes, we do have some dreams about what we'd like to do about our structural building here. We do have plenty to talk about and plan, plenty to plan about regarding bricks of more and mortar here at the rink. But far more important than all that is that God wants to build up his spiritual temple. As Paul put it to the congregation at Ephesus, Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 2 we're encouraged to come as living stones to let yourselves be used in building the spiritual temple of God. And that's the kind of temple God wants of us God wants each one of us to be part of the temple he wants to build. And the question is, are you ready to consider what God is asking of you this morning? Are you ready to believe that God is speaking words of renewal to you and to our church? Are you ready to act upon God's word and to step out in faith as a risk taker? That is your call, of course. But one thing I can assure you is this, that God will be with us. And God will bless us. And that's the final word I want to give you to you from Haggai this morning. Verse 13. What a tremendous verse this is. This is when the Lord says to the people, I am with you, says the Lord. And please note that this promise didn't come earlier in the chapter. It was only when the people had believed and, and sorry, considered and believed and finally acted upon the Lord that the Lord then in response says, I'm going to be with you. You can't just sit back and wait for the Lord to bless you before you go and do his work. I've spoken to many well-meaning Christians and salvationists over the years about things. and say, well, I'm just waiting for a word for the Lord. I'm just waiting to have that you know, blessing, if you like, and then I'll do it. It's actually the other way around. It's only when in obedience and only when in faith we step out in faith and do the Lord's work that the Lord will bless us and the Lord will be with us. Remember the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel when Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations and lo, I will be with you always. Again, the order. Go and make disciples and then it's, and lo, I will be with you. God won't bless us if we're not willing to respond in faith to him. You can't have the lo without the go. We have to go and make disciples And lo, God will be with us. And I want to assure you this, that God's blessing will be upon us as we move forward in God's name to build a spiritual temple. And I invite you all to get on board as we build the temple of the Lord together. Amen.